Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichberger. On this podcast, we are spinning the wheel of fortune. Here's the slam from our season, Be in the Game. Some audience members shared their stories inspired by the theme, Wheel of Fortune, for an online audience. But first, I share a story from our soundstage about a wheel that was not intended to be part of fortune. It's game time and it's story time. Uh, wheel of Fortune, I, I have kind of a little story. It's about a giant wheel, uh, which was not meant to be a Wheel of Fortune, but someone tried to use it as a Wheel of Fortune with, with uh, some mixed results. Uh, a number of years ago, I took my sister and my partner and I were in London and we got onto the Eye of London, which is a giant observation wheel that takes about 45 minutes to go all the way around and it has these giant glass pods that are fixed in there and you can walk around in them and they serve you champagne. And the idea is it's the highest point in London. It's on the, one, the opposite side of the Thames so you can look out over the city uh, we were excited. We were only in London, I think, for a weekend. So we kind of had to do things at certain times. And we already had our reservation for the Eye of London. And unfortunately, the day was kind of one of those classic London weather days where it's just sort of misty and gray. Uh, it's not really raining. It's more like that nasal drip that just sort of hangs in the air. So the view of the city wasn't super. We couldn't really see like St. Paul's Cathedral. I mean, we could see the Tower of London and we could see Big Ben because those are close enough to the Thames. But anything that was a little further away was kind of hard to see, which was a little disappointing. Um, so we were kind of walking in our glass bubble, looking out over the city with our glasses of champagne that they had handed out to us and looking at sort of just a lot of gray. Until, and there were about 20 people in our pod until somebody said, oh my God, he's proposing. And we we're like, what, what's happening, what? And we looked at the pod behind us and, sh and that pod only had three people. It had this man and presumably his girlfriend and then the one hostess attendant who was standing with a tray and some champagne. And he went down on one knee and all of us were ignoring London completely. Like this was a way more interesting, dramatic view than the city was providing that day. And so we all just turned and just looked at this glass bubble that was revolving in the sky where this man had clearly spent some money to reserve it in order to secure his fortune for the future. But we're, it, it took a while and then one of the people in, in our bubble suddenly just kind of went, <gasps> He's, she said no. <laughs> and sure enough, we are looking in this silent bubble. We can't hear anything, but she has now folded her arms around her and has turned away from him and is actually facing us through the glass wall and kind of just shaking herself <laughs> back and forth. And the poor attendant who has the champagne is just like backing slowly away, <laughs> like incredibly awkwardly. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I am stuck in this bubble with this couple, who, with this guy who clearly counted his eggs way too early. And uh, he then 
motions her over, and she kind of tentatively walks over, and he just takes the bottle of champagne from her, doesn't even pour it in the glass, and just <laughs> turns it up and just starts glug, 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 glug. <laughs> and we were riveted. Uh, I, I don't know how long this took. I mean, we had started a uh, quarter of the way up, maybe. When the proposal happened, we were really near the top, so he had kind of timed it out, like, so that the apex of the event would be his grand proposal. But uh, having failed, he now had another 20 minutes or so to just sit in this pod with this woman who has rejected him and an extremely uncomfortable employee with at least 20 audience members in the pod before. I don't know if the pod after was keyed into this or not. Uh, it was not a wheel of fortune for that gentleman that night, not at all. And I'm just enough of a sadist that I made my little party, even though we were the pod in front and we got out first, I was like, can we please just wait here and watch them exit? And, and we did, we did. But actually, once they got out of their pod, they looked much more relieved <laughs> to be out of that enclosed space. And I do hope that their fortunes uh, improved after that. Uh, who knows what happened, um, but uh, it's permanently in my memory as an example of a wheel of misfortune, I suppose. And those are the kind of stories we're going to hear tonight about wheels in, in metaphoric ways. That was a wheel in a very literal way. We have a couple other very literal wheels coming up tonight, too. And one of these individuals is our guest storyteller right now. Do we have uh, Bev Bryant? Have we got her screen here? Oh man, back in 1965, my family moved into this house on Warm Springs, way at the end of Warm Springs, and kind of give you a little bit of situation here, it's um, right across the street from the prison, and right in the edge of the foothills, on the other end of the house, where the wheel was, is a big old huge cow pasture, and then on the other side of the wheel is this really cool jungle. So it was a great place to grow up as a child. It's the best. I felt very fortunate. So when we moved in in 65, the wheel was all broken, like you saw in that first picture, just kind of in pieces around there. I don't know that it had ever been restored since it was built, I imagine, in the early 1900s. And so... Three years after we moved in, my dad decided, and my brothers decided they're gonna rebuild the wheel. And my dad has a background in, in construction. He used to build houses and he actually worked at Boise Cascade. He was the auditor for all the lumber yards. So he knew where the best lumber was. So anyway, he uh, they decided to do that. It, I believe it took him about a year to rebuild it, two, like two falls. And it was a really interesting process to watch. They wouldn't let me work on it. I was too little. I was in like fourth or fifth grade when they were doing that. But it was fun to watch and they did an awesome job and they'd stick a huge long pole through the wheel when they didn't want it to run. And then when they'd started up every year after they rebuilt this absolutely gorgeous, they did not rebuild the flume because we were not gonna irrigate our backyard from it. And apparently the wheel was made to irrigate before all the houses were there, a farm with fruits and veggies. And so they actually used it as a water wheel. And, but when we rebuilt it, we didn't have a need to do that, to water our upper yard with that. So we didn't rebuild the flume. 
and didn't put the buckets back on because the buckets were old and in really, really bad shape. So they just left the buckets down there by the wheel for a little bit of ambiance. <laughs> and anyway, it worked great and we didn't want it to run. We'd stick a pole through it so it would stop. And then when the season would start up, we'd pull the pole out and watch it go. And I always did that every year. That was kind of like my little thing to do. And then one night, this is the scary part about the whole story. I had a friend that was spending the night with us, me, and we were sleeping out in the backyard. Our yard was two layers. It was the upper yard by the house and then a lower yard down by the water wheel. And we were just being, you know, typical fourth, fifth graders talking and all of a sudden we hear something down by the water wheel. And we just immediately froze because we didn't know what it was gonna be. So we thought we have to check it out. So we walk over to the edge of the property and look down on the water wheel. And sure enough, two glowing eyes are looking right up at us, scared us to death. We scream, we run in the house, we go up and tell mom and dad. It's probably like three in the morning. You know, they were not thrilled with us. They didn't believe our story. They say, go back to bed. So we go back to bed and we're scared all night about this thing down there. So that's what we called it, the thing, because we had no clue what it was. So over the years, the story would build about the thing down by the water wheel. And looking back on it years later, I'm sure it was probably just a cow that got loose from the cow, you know, the pasture out back. But we always thought it was the monster. But now what I prefer to think about it is, is it's a troll protecting the water wheel because it brought us good fortune over all the years of living there. And I lived there through my uh, freshman year and then we moved out across town. So I got to live there eight glorious years watching that wheel work five of those eight. And that's my story. All right, Beth will tell a story. Okay. Thanks for inspiring me. I was thinking about trying to prepare for this and I, I hadn't thought of anything. And then when I heard the other stories, I thought of a story. So I lived in Vermont. I moved here from Vermont about four years ago. I lived there for five years. Um, and in my fourth year, I finally decided to buy a car. I had been carless for six years and um, not for environmental reasons, just because I couldn't afford one. <laughs> and I finally had gotten a job that allowed me uh, uh, to be able to get a car. And I knew I wanted a Mazda because I had a Mazda as my first car. I had like a little um, four door gray 95 with the seat belts that you know, automatically went over your shoulder when you open and close the door. And uh, little red Hawaiian seat covers, and it was stick shift. I always had driven stick shifts. And uh, I just knew I wanted a Mazda because I loved them. And so I thought about this decision for a long time. I looked around, um, I got some advice, and I had some people to tell you know, I had some people tell me like, what you need to do is you need to go to the dealership and you need to find a car that like second owner, like already has that new chunk of like money, like newness money, like kind of off the value of it, um, but is still in really good shape and maybe partially covered by a warranty. 
And um, I looked around, looked around, looked around, you know, drug my heels as I do with decisions for a really long time. <laughs> and I, um, I finally, one day I saw on the Mazda dealer web website that they had two Mazdas in stock to use Mazdas for sale. And so I took the bus out there. Uh, it was about a 35 minute bus ride to the dealership. This is in the middle of winter in Vermont. It's freezing cold and snowing. And I get there and I knew exactly which one I wanted to test drive. It was, um, it was black four door Mazda three with a standard transmission. Um, and I took it out on the highway and, um, just like really opened it up, went as fast as I could. I took that car out for a very long test drive by myself. Um, and I think I, I had not felt that feeling of freedom um, since I had gotten my first car. Uh, and I got my first car pretty late. I didn't learn to drive until I was about 18 and I was 19 when I got that first car and it sat in the driveway my aunt's house for a while because I didn't know how to drive stick shift and she lived in a very hilly place. And that was so, I remember that was so frustrating um, after just going all the way through high school and never being able to drive and then going through a six year period where I also couldn't drive. And so I got back to the dealership and I knew I wanted this car. They wanted $12,000 for it. I talked them down to 10 and um, they were very sweet about it. And they put snow tires right on the loan. They got me the loan right there. They helped me get insurance. We put it all on the loan. I sat there. I was at that car dealership pretty much all day because I was not taking the bus home. No way. Um, and I, I had heard somewhere before uh, that every, the saying that um, every woman needs a, every woman needs a wife. And at that moment, I just felt like I had found my wife. And so I named her wifey. And um, that is the story of my, I don't know, well, it was my fourth car, but like my, the biggest, the car I've loved the most. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. 